0: I'm glad you're here. I want you to open up your Bibles if you would, and while you're opening them up, let me tell you sincerely, I really am thankful that you're here. There's a lot of churches in this area, and uh, I'm glad that you choose to worship at Cornerstone. And I don't know if you know it, but we're a multi-siting church, so we've got church service on Saturday evening, church service Sunday morning here, church services at our other location Sunday morning as well. We've got a lot of things going on. And it's pretty exciting, but be praying for us, and uh, we would appreciate that. So Proverbs chapter 24, that's going to be our passage today, Proverbs 24. And we're going to try to answer the question or the statement, we are our brother's keeper. So let me tell you about something that was written back in the late 1990s. <clears throat> for some of you, you may not even have been born yet. For some of you, you might have already been old. But let me tell you about what was written in the late 1990s that was about the church in the 2nd century AD. Now listen to this. Everybody, you got to listen to this because this is going to set the stage for what we're going to look at in Proverbs 24. Here it is. Rodney Stark, in Christian History Magazine, 1998, wrote these words. In a world lacking social services. Christians were their brother's keepers. At the end of the 2nd century AD, Tertullian, he was a Christian theologian, wrote that while pagan temples spend their donations, pagan temples spend their donations on, quote, feasts and drinking bouts, Christians spent theirs to support and bury poor people To supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined to the house. That's how the church was spending their money. And these claims concerning Christian charity were confirmed by those who were pagans, those who were not Christians. In fact, the pagan emperor Julian complained that the Galileans, the Christians, listen to this, support not only their own poor but ours as well. So the church in the second century was spending the monies that were given to it to take care of the poor, those who could not care for themselves, the oppressed. In fact, not only were they taking care of the people within the church, they were taking care of people within Rome who were not part of the church. It has so impressed them that the gospel had an opening. I'm going to share with you a couple points today. The first one is this. Our world is full of evil people. Listen, our world is full of evil people. Now listen, let's get in the Word. Let's let the Word of God drive us deeper into the mind of God. Here we go. uh, Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 7. And that's a good reminder. Check your cell phones. You want to have them off, this is the service that we record. And so we want to make sure that you guys have your cell phones off. So Proverbs chapter 24, look at what it says in verse 7. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans, verse 8, to do evil will be called the schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind, So here we go. The world is full of evil people. Wisdom, it says, comes down from on high. It's too high. Look what it says, verse 7. Wisdom is too high for a fool. Why? Because wisdom comes down. Wisdom always comes down. Wisdom never comes up from the world. True wisdom comes down from God. He is the giver of wisdom. God alone gives wisdom. James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Listen, if you want wisdom, you got to look up. You pray. It says, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, and impartial and sincere. Wisdom comes down from God. James 1 says, if you don't have wisdom, simply look up and ask. And God who is above will give it generously. So wisdom is above The ability of a fool to obtain. Listen, if you're a fool, you cannot have wisdom. It is above us. And even if that fool has, look what it says, a seat in the gate. You ever seen that before? In the gate? See, the gate of a city was like its newspaper. Now you gotta know this, you gotta get inside what Solomon is teaching. To his son, What the nobles were teaching the young people of Israel who were future leaders, that's what Proverbs is about. Proverbs is about wisdom for the young because they're one day going to be influential in Israel, they're going to be influential in the church. The gate of the city was a newspaper. It's where you got all the news. It functioned like a court. It was a center of public life. It was the pulpit for preaching. That's where prophets would preach in the gate. It was a place for begging. The gate was a place where prominent leaders of the community would sit and they would form a tribunal to judge over the affairs of the city. Even in issues like verse 6, look what it says. For by wise guidance you wage your war. That's where they decided, are we going to go to war or not? Well, the the ones who sat in the gate deliberated and they decided for their their city, for their community. See, if you had a seat at the gate, you were part of the elders quote of the gate, the Bible calls them. It It was a high honor. But if you had, quote, oppression in the gates, that meant that you had a corrupt ruler. You had a corrupt judge. You had Job. You remember Job? Who, Job, the book of Job's probably the oldest book in the Bible. And you had Job, and he says this, that I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help them. Listen, Job had a seat in the gate. He had a position in order to be able to deliver the oppressed. He had authority because he sat in the gate of the city. And from that gate, he caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Why? Because he was good looking? Probably not. It's because he gave liberally. He gave generously. He ruled. In the widow's favor From the gate And from the gate He was the eyes to the blind And feet to the lame The father to the needy Now listen And he searched out the cause of him Whom I did not know What that means is When a case came before him And he didn't know the answer He investigated it Like a reporter Like a detective He searched out the cause. He got off the gate. He went and talked to people. Is the need legitimate? Is the oppression for real? Should we help or not? He didn't just sit on the gate. He went and he searched out the answers. See, seats in the gate were for the wise to speak. On behalf of justice. But the fool, verse 7, the fool has nothing to contribute to the welfare of those in need. Look what it says. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. He doesn't care. See, the world is full of evil people. They don't care. Wisdom is above them. They may have a prominent position. Think politics. You've got a lot of people in politics have a prominent position. They really don't care about the needs of the people. They don't care about the oppressed. And Solomon points out, keep reading with me, he points out verse 8... He's a schemer, this fool. The wisdom is above him. He's a schemer. Meaning this, he's, ta- he's not talking in the gate because he doesn't have wisdom to give. But before he gets up in that seat, when he gets down, he's doing a lot of talking. He's doing a lot of scheming. Whoever plans to do evil will be called the schemer, the deviser, the, the devising of folly is sin. And the, the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. You know what a schemer is? Well, Proverbs 6.18, I preached on that a while ago. A schemer has a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. The world is full of evil people. And these are schemers who are in positions of authority and they're not speaking on behalf of the oppressed. They're not speaking justice. They're speaking their own evil schemes, their own plans to prosper themselves. You see, scoffers... And we have them. We have them. They're all around us in our world. Scoffers see themselves as superior to God and to other people. They bring nothing good to people. A scoffer doesn't bring anything good to people. Instead, verse 9, they are an abomination to mankind. So our world is full of evil people who mock God And his word, and they bring evil to other people. Now listen, all of that was really introduction for this statement. You ready? It's into this darkness of a world dominated by evil people. Who care nothing for wisdom, will not look up to get it. Who scheme on their own behalf. Listen, the world is full of evil people, and it's into that darkness... That Christians, you and I, brother and sister, if you're in Christ, we are to bring the light of Christ. And our responsibility is clear, point number two. Our responsibility is clear. Before we even really unpack what I mean by that, our responsibility is clear. Let me remind you what I introduced to you several weeks ago. That the Lord is more and more clearly directing us, Cornerstone to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. I want you to remember that, DRC. In order to bring hope in the healing of the gospel, let me tell you what it's like in the DRC. Ready? This is a quotation. Now listen, more than one generation of children, if you're a parent, think your own children for a minute. More than one generation of children in the Eastern DRC has never known a secure, peaceful childhood. Never. Can you imagine? And you may be able to because you may have been brought up in a very abusive home. So that ought to pour out your heart of mercy even more. Can you imagine growing up and never ever knowing what it's like to live in peace? You've got an entire generation of people in the DRC. Since 1996... The nation has lost more than 5 million inhabitants due to war and conflict. Estimates are that of the 250,000 child soldiers worldwide, tens of thousands are active in the Great Lakes regions, the DRC region. And the typical way, now listen, the typical way that you recruit these child soldiers is to abduct them from their families and to do that you kill or maim their fathers and you rape their mothers and their sisters and you teach them to grow up to do the same. That's what they're doing over there. In fact, reports are that between 1.69 million and 1.88 million women have been raped in the DRC. It's a weapon of war that, quote, is designed to destroy the very fabric of society. Can you imagine? I mean, come on, I know we're Americans. We're pretty comfortable. But can you just get out of your comfortable life for a moment and just imagine that you're living in the DRC. You grew up in the DRC, and you've seen these atrocities firsthand. We've got five people riding from our church. There's more, but five from our church riding bicycles down Florida this summer in the She's My Sister tour. They're raising money, they're raising awareness to bring Christ-centered trauma counseling to these very women in the DRC. And our responsibility is clear. And you ready? This is the entire epicenter of this message. I mean, if you get, if you don't get what I'm about to tell you, then you're not going to get anything in this message. Our world is full of evil people. Our responsibility is clear. Here it is. When God shows you suffering, when he shows me suffering, it is our responsibility to do what we can to relieve it. That's our responsibility. You can't shirk that Now some of you might And I wouldn't blame you Some of you might be saying Well wait a minute Africa is on a very very large Very distant part of the world The fact that you now know What is happening in Africa Engages your responsibility Well somebody might be saying Well no wait a minute We've got suffering around the east end of Lehigh Valley You're right And our responsibility is to engage the suffering here as well. When God shows you suffering and injustice, it is your responsibility to do what you can to relieve it. Look at verse 11. Rescue those. Now here's the word of God. Just let its weight settle on you. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Rescue means deliver. Deliver those helplessly caught in the strength of evil. They're caught in a grip of evil that is bigger than they are. And the Bible says you've got to rescue them. There's your responsibility. Because God is incredibly concerned with justice. And it's demonstrated all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. But let me show you One way that God is so incredibly committed to justice. In order to prevent murder among the community of Israel, God developed capital punishment. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't like capital punishment. It doesn't matter what you like. What's the word of God say? God developed it. And he commanded it to be carried out mainly in four ways. Burning, stoning, strangulation... And one more that I can't remember. But I want you to see God's mercy against injustice, even in a murder charge, even in a capital charge. See, he commanded when they settled into the land of Israel, he commanded that there would be six cities set up, and those six cities were called a place of refuge. If you were accused of murdering somebody, unlawfully killing Somebody. You could flee to one of these places of refuge and they would protect you so that you could have a fair trial. And it was commanded that no one could live further than 30 miles from one of those cities. You had to be within one fast day's journey from a place of refuge. And the roads, now listen, the roads to these cities were always by law meant to be maintained. And the cities were within 30 miles. So listen, they would repair the roads to these cities so that there would be no obstruction keeping somebody from finding justice. To defend their cause. It was the victim's next of kin. Now listen, if I were, if I were accused of murdering somebody, the person that I'm accused of murdering, if it was proven true, the victim's next of kin, the person that I mur- mer- murdered, his next of kin would be the one that would have to execute me. It's not some dispassionate city guard or medical doctor. ...or prison official. There had to be no less than two eyewitnesses. Circumstantial evidence was never accepted. The court was open all day. Listen, this is Jewish. This is the Jewish court. The court was open all day... ...in case fresh evidence of the innocence of the accused was obtained. On the very day of execution... There would be a man sent all throughout the city in advance of the condemned person. So the condemned person is walking from the holding place to the place of execution. They would walk him through the city. Somebody would go out. He'd be called a crier. He'd be going out in front of that condemned person. And he would be crying out and inviting any who had evidence of this man's innocence step forward. Now because God is preeminently concerned with justice. And you'd have a man at the courthouse with a white cloth and within eyesight would be a man on horseback. And if there was last second evidence that would come into the court, the man at the courthouse would wave the cloth. The man on horseback would gallop to the execution site to stay the hand of the next of kin who was about to execute the person so that they could retry it. And there was never a limit to the appeal process. If new evidence came in 50 times, you retried it 50 times. Why? Because the world is full of evil people. People lie. Injustice happens and that really, really bothers God. See, the premium was put on those who were witnesses to speak up and to rescue and to maintain justice. So verse 11, ready? Here we go again. So rescue, hold back those who are unjustly accused, unjustly convicted. Uh, Furthermore, rescue, hold back Those who are suffering from circumstances they cannot change, like famine, like disease. Rescue, hold back those who are genuinely poor. They cannot work due to circumstances beyond their control. Rescue, hold back those who are victims of cruel governments and dictatorships. But you ready? Now listen to this. More than all of those, famine, disease unemployment, dictatorships, more than all of those, rescue, hold back those who are caught in the strong grip of sin and are on their way to hell. Listen, you're a witness. You're a witness of their ability to be exonerated, that they don't have to die in eternal death. Ride before them and cry out to their innocence. This is where Proverbs 24 is really going. Picture the horror that awaits people who do not know Jesus, who may have heard of him but have rejected him. Instead, I'll find my own way. I don't want to go through Jesus. If the only way to the Father is through the Son, then I'm going to have Jesus plus, and that is no Jesus, or I don't want Jesus. And what they're facing for an eternity after this life is over is conscious torment in hell. The Bible cannot be clear. Nobody spoke of hell more than Jesus Christ. Nobody. He created it. He created hell. He's going to be the one that puts people into hell. He's going to be the one that separates from hell. And he's going to to be the one that, that, that invites all of us who have put our trust in him to never even look upon hell and to look upon his gaze and enjoy his eternal blessing. And we Christian, you and I, brother and sister, we are to rise up and declare the good news that God offers this person who's on his way to an execution site, forever separated from Christ. We're the witnesses, we're the ones that are to declare to them the good news. You can't be declared innocent because the one who was innocent died on your behalf so that you can live. That's justice. You might be thinking, well, God, you know what? The thing I have about God is that there's no justice in this world. Listen, if you wanted God's justice, every one of us would go to hell because none of us deserve it. You want God's gospel justice? Well, he took all of our sins, mine and yours, and he put them all on Christ, and then he took the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he put it onto us, so that we could be declared right before him and enjoy his favor forevermore. You gotta rise up. You gotta declare that good news that Jesus Christ offers. We, who are the witnesses to this salvation, who've been saved ourselves, must speak. And you get back to verse 11. Here it is again. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. How better can you apply that to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? But most of us, let's be honest, sometimes you just have to pin your soul to the wall and let the light of Christ show you the ugliness. I mean, you have to do that. Because most of us, Make excuses why we're not that witness, why we're not that crier, why we're not begging and pleading for our unsaved loved ones or those who are around the world suffering injustice and we're doing nothing about it. Listen, we make excuses. We're lulled into a false sense that we're not responsible. You know what? Solomon anticipates that. So the third point is this. Our excuses are disastrous. Our excuses are disastrous. Well, here's the first excuse that we make. See if you don't do this. I know I've done it. The first one is we cannot claim weakness. This is what Solomon's preempting. The excuse is that, Lord, we're too weak. Well, he's saying you can't claim that. That excuse is disastrous. Because we tend to see the scope of the problem... Right? You see, you hear me give you the statistics of the DRC and you say, well, that's not only too far away, but that is so massive. There's nothing I can do. It's just too big. Or you've got a friend who's struggling. His marriage is falling apart in your mind. You're saying his whole family has struggled like this since I've ever known them. They're never going to change. Why would I want to get involved in their mess? Why get involved in something that's not ever going to change? Or you read statistics on the 150,000 children in the United States alone who are waiting for adoption. Did you know that? There's 150,000 children in the U.S. waiting for adoption. Or you hear that there's 1.2 million abortions in America every year, or that 300 thousand children per year in the in the United States are forced into the sex trade, and each child generates you know how much each child generates their pimp 150 to 200 thousand dollars annually, and each pimp usually has four to five children. And so you read this, these statistics about adoption. 150,000 waiting for adoption and then you think well, so many people that I know who've adopted they've gone through terrible struggles Why would I want to risk that for my family and you start making these excuses? Or you see the the, the largeness of the need and and you think what will my little bit of volunteerism do in the face of this Huge need. Well, let me remind you something ready friends You got to remember this biblical saints Always face problems too big for them to deal with alone. Always. I mean, think about Gideon for a moment, if you can recall the story. God whittled him down, whittled his army down to 300 men against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Who, the Bible says, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as a sand that is on the seashore in abundance, and you've got 300 men against them. See, God always likes to reframe our thinking, away from excuses, back to faith. We could do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Us and God can literally do anything that He desires. They were more than enough, the 300 with Gideon, who confound, because, why? Because God confounded the enemy's soldiers. The Bible says the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, literally routed them. Or think of that one little boy who brought his meager little lunch to Jesus. When there's 5,000 men, which means there's likely 5,000 women or so, and at least just extrapolate at two kids per family, at least 20,000, some estimate higher to 30. And here comes a little kid bringing his lunch, his lunch kit. I mean, parents, think of the little lunch that you make for your kids when they go to school. He brings a lunch kit to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know what, I was waiting for somebody to give me something because I could do everything with a little thing. It was more than enough. Why? Because the Lord took it and he multiplied it. When you faint, look at what the text says, when you faint in the day of adversity, verse 10, the problem is your faith. Not God. Your faith in God is too small. Because God takes our meager and our frail and our seemingly insufficient offerings and he multiplies it for his purposes to bring justice, to bring healing and hope to people around the world. I mean, come on, these five people from Cornerstone, they're going to be pedaling across and down Florida. Listen, I can tell you when their lungs are burning and the Floridian winds are against them and their, their legs are just killing them, they're going to be probably thinking, why am I doing this? What difference will this really make? Well, you don't know what difference this can make. This could revolutionize a whole village, Jesus took 11 untrained, raw, sinful men. He trained them. He used them to change the entire world. We're sitting here today because of those men, because of what Jesus did with them. He took a back desert murderer. And he enabled him to free over 2 million Jews from slavery and lead them to the promised land. Verse 10, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is too small. You can't use the excuse that there's nothing I can do. Because that shows you that your hope is in your strength, not in God's power. Friends, if we give in before evil doing nothing, we have no power. And wisdom wants to do something about it. Look what wisdom can do. Proverbs 24, verse 5. Just look up a few verses. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. Wisdom strengthens us. And it's available to anyone. It calls out from the market. It fills a person with strength. It is the power to live skillfully before the Lord and with each other. And for the Christian, wisdom is just an earnest prayer away. It's a gift that God's always willing to give. But look at the second excuse we cannot claim. Solomon anticipates it. We cannot claim ignorance. I mean, behold, if you, if you say, behold, we did not know this. Verse 12, Behold, we did not know this. Well, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? I mean, how many times have we said, I didn't know there was a need. You know what Job used to do? Job used to find out if there was a need, not wait for the need to be made known. See, in the Old Testament, people were primarily taught it was wrong to do wrong. Now, listen, listen, you got to get this. But Christ expanded on the law he taught that it was wrong not to do right. The Old Testament's wrong to do wrong, Christ it's wrong not to do right. So recall the story of the good samaritan where the priest and the levite who saw the injured man laying beaten on that road drawing closer to death and they did they didn't do anything to help. And they were just as guilty as the one who had beaten and robbed him. see, we often confess to God, don't we, that we have done things we should not have done. Don't you do that? I do that. But how often do we confess that we've not done that which we should have done? So we've got the thing down where it says, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. But how often are we saying, Lord, I, I should have done that? You declared it to me. You made it known to me. But I didn't do it. And all of a sudden, we remember the servant who did not use his money that the master had given to him to prosper as master or those who didn't give water to the thirsty or visit prisoners. They did not do what they should have. Rather, they did what they shouldn't have. And Christ holds them up to judgment. Friends, you cannot ignore evil all around you. And say that you're not responsible to help. When God opens your eyes to injustice and suffering, it is now your responsibility to do what's in your power to do. You cannot shut your eyes against tyranny and oppression, even if it's on the other side of the world from us. Because when God shows us evil, we are to begin earnestly laboring for good, even if it's just in prayer. What he reveals to us is what he calls us to labor in the gospel for. But there's a third excuse, and Solomon's going to anticipate it. We cannot claim an exemption. You cannot claim to be too weak. You cannot claim ignorance that you didn't know about it. And you cannot claim an exemption. Look at verse 12, the second part. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? See, the first time that we're ever going to see the responsibility of being a brother's keeper is in the angry, rebellious reply that Cain gave to God. He said, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed them. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you want to know something? Nearly all of the rest of the Bible, and that's only Genesis 4, nearly all of the rest of the Bible goes to answer that question with an emphatic, yes, you are your brother's keeper, and you are your sister's keeper. But our flesh makes the excuse, it's not my responsibility. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will help. Well, what's it mean to be a brother's keeper? What's it mean to be a sister's keeper? Let's start with the word responsibility. This is so simple. How often have you reversed the word responsibility so that you see it as the ability to respond? The ability to make a response response. I mean, that's really what response ability is. It's the ability to respond to the needs of another person, whether those needs are physical, emotional, spiritual. I mean, I had somebody this last week call me, believing that his friend was being sexually impure. Calls me up, says, Pastor Tim, what should I do? I said, well, I think you should talk to your friend. That's what friendships do. I think you should talk to your friend about it. Be loving, be bold, be gracious. He did. It went well. He was living out his responsibility to be his brother's keeper. See, our world direct wants, us to, wants to lull us into this self-directed, self-insulating cocoon. Just worry about yourself. But the gospel, listen, the gospel moves us out. The gospel opens your eyes and persuades you that you don't belong to this world. You belong to the kingdom of God. And you're working in this kingdom on this earth. And you're laboring for justice. You're bringing hope to the shattered, strength to the weary, food for the hungry, holiness to the impure. So listen, has God given you finances? Has He given you a spacious home? Has He given you an extra car? Is he giving you a gift of mercy or abundant food or abilities to help others in need? Listen, you take those and you put them into an open fist. You don't close it like in Nehemiah's day. You keep it open. Here's what God does. God says, hey, Tim, I, I gave all those things to you to steward. Keep your fist open. Don't, don't hold on to them. Don't possess. Steward. Because there's come a day where I'm going to come down and I'm going to take that that I gave you and I'm going to bring it over to here because somebody else is in need. And when I start pulling that, don't, don't try to grab it. It's not yours. It's mine. I have all right to it. I'm your creator. I'm your master. I gave it to you. I didn't give it to you to possess. I gave it to you to, to steward, to manage for when you need to apply it in the kingdom. And I might take it and I might use it here. And that might be your health. That might be your wealth. And it will most definitely be your time. But you hold them in open fists. You allow God to reach down and take them and divert them wherever he chooses. And friends, not one of us are exempt from this responsibility. Not one of us. The world is full of evil people. There's injustice and cruel tyranny everywhere in America, in DRC, all around the globe. And our responsibility is clear and we cannot make excuses. Let me close by showing you how God applied this to his own people, the Jews, who were conquered by Babylon and exiled to a country that was not their own. If I mention Jeremiah 29 to you, some of you are going to say, Hey, I know that chapter. That's the chapter where God says, I have plans for you. I want to remind you about that. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you, right? We we associate that verse with Jeremiah 29. But look a little bit ahead of it. And listen to what he says. You ready? Now listen, just because I'm closing doesn't mean your mind closes. This is important. The Jews are in Babylon. They're in exile. They're slaves. God commands his people... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Who sent them? God did. What are they to do? Sit and mourn, hang up their harps like they did? And refuse to worship God? No. He said, I want you to live differently. Seek the welfare of the very Babylonian cities into which I sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. The very people that have conquered you. For in its welfare you will find your welfare, and the message is clear for us this side of the cross, 2,000 years later. Listen, we, the world is full of evil people. Our Babylon is the world. And we're exiles here, Christian. We're not, we're not citizens of this earth. We're pilgrims. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, right? But we live here, around people who are caught up in the strong grip of sin under the scheming evil devil. The world is full of evil people. So pray, God's people, pray and act. Look what God says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Quit trying to escape the world. Christian, don't don't create little Christian subcultures that you can live in to escape the world and hide behind the walls of the church. Get out. You got to get out and seek justice. And you settle into the world. you be in it, but you don't be of it. Look what he says. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Now listen, this is kingdom language. Multiply there and do not decrease. Get people saved. Give them the good news of the gospel. Multiply so that there's more in the kingdom of God tomorrow than there were today you got to witness. you got a disciple. you got to build God's family here on earth. You multiply there. Where is there? Well, it's at your jobs. It's at your schools, your dorms, your teams, your neighborhoods, your clubs, your gyms, your carpooling, your bus ride to work. God is infinitely concerned with those who are suffering, those who are on their way to hell. And we are to go ahead of them. All the way to the execution site, to the day they don't breathe anymore and cry out, there's a substitute for you. And even when they're brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe, if God shows it to you, you bear responsibility for them. And you do all that's within your power to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And not one of us are exempt. We are all our brother's keepers. And wisdom wants to show us how to do that. Let's pray.